The scripture this morning is John 8, verses 31 through 36. I'll be reading from the NIV. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The word of the Lord. So if you were here last week, you know we've begun a new series. We're looking at the reasonableness of faith. The assumption here being not that faith is just reasonable, but that faith is not less than reasonable. In fact, is more than reasonable. And we are looking at some of the common objections that people have. And today, one of those that we're looking at is this idea that the call to obedience is actually a call to submission, which stands in opposition to freedom. How can we both be called to submit and to be free? And if you were here last week, you know that the purpose of this series is not to equip you to go out and have these great intellectual debates with people. It's to equip you to understand that the position that we hold is, is very reasonable. It's to give us confidence in our own faith and give us confidence to go out with a desire to introduce Jesus to, our, to other people, to understand that as we talked about last week, Christianity is not an exclusive religion. It is a religion that has an inclusive truth that we are bringing and proclaiming to the world, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So how can I be free? How can I be free if I have to obey, if I have to submit? It's a good question. And in fact, it's a question that's, that's embedded in the text that Rob read this morning. It's in verses 31 and 32, and I'm going to read them again because it's important to see that Jesus doesn't skirt around the obedience piece at all. This is not one of those passages about obedience, uh, about freedom that just sort of avoids obedience. It's right there in the text. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if you obey, if you submit, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there's no avoidance of the fact that obedience in the Christian faith and freedom go together. And what a paradox that is in our culture. I want to read to you a quote from someone who uh, holds to a philosophy which uh, believes that everybody should be as free as possible. This is an anarchist, a famous anarchist from the early 1900s writing in a paper she wrote called The Failure of Christianity in 1913. Emma Goldman, you may be familiar with her, one of the founding uh, authors of the idea of anarchy, that anarchy being not just chaos, but the fact that everybody should live in their own personal freedom. She wrote this, and it's scathing, listen to this. Christianity is most admirably adapted to the training of slaves to the perpetuation of a slave society. In short, to the very conditions confronting us today. Indeed, never could a society have degenerated to its present appalling stage 
if not for the assistance of Christianity. The rulers of the earth have realized long ago what potent poison inheres in the Christian religion. That is the reason they foster it. That is why they leave nothing undone to instill it in the blood of the people. And this, this sounds like religion is the, is the opiate of the masses on steroids. That's exactly what it is. They're arguing that rather than freeing, religion is used to enslave. And maybe that makes sense. The steroid version of Marxism may indeed uh, be anarchism. But in case you're thinking, oh my gosh, how crazy are those anarchists, those Marxists? Uh, thank goodness we live in the United States. I'm going to read to you the majority opinion from a court case uh, given by the Supreme Court. Uh, this was uh, written by Kennedy in the uh, case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and it, it aligns with a pluralist modern worldview. Listen to this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now listen, he didn't say at the heart of liberty is to find or to look for. He said at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence and meaning. And in case you're thinking, oh my gosh, all these highfalutin quotes from anarchists and Supreme Court, how many of you are familiar with the movie Soul? A Pixar movie. Great Pixar movie, fun to watch. And the premise of that movie is that in the, in the before life, in order to go down to earth, souls have to find a spark. And they're given a mentor. And that mentor uh, often misconstrues the point of the spark. And this is what Jerry, who I guess in Pixar terms is the guardian of the galaxy actually says oh you mentors and you passion and your passions your purposes your meanings of life so basic and the the the, the grand theme of the movie from Pixar is it's almost like they read the Supreme Court judgment uh, in the Planned Parenthood, uh, Parenthood versus Casey is that You've got to find your own meaning in the in, in the day-to-day -day living. There isn't any grand purpose. If you have a grand purpose, you're going to go wrong. That's such a basic idea. There's a sort of way in which the way we live life, the way we explore, it's a sort of like a, a wholesome, healthy hedonism. And everyone can work that out for themselves. So there we see it. In the anarchist point of view, in the Supreme Court of the United States, and in the uh, popular culture, this idea that we have a right to define our own purpose and meaning, and that is the way to true liberty, to true freedom. And by implication, Christianity enslaves. And how does Christianity enslave? By defining our purpose and by destroying authentic personhood. The individual right to self-define is taken away, and that's, according to Pixar, according to Supreme Court, according to anarchists, that is at the essence of what it means to be human. Now, does this destroy freedom? Well, I guess it depends on, uh, depends on how you define freedom. Because Jesus, in this text that we just read, claims that the truth will set you free. Verse 32, those are his exact words that he used. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How? How does it set you free? We're going to look at 
two, actually three sections in this text. The first is a self-proclaimed slavery that the Jews at the time didn't even realize they were proclaiming in verse 33. Then we're going to look at Jesus' diagnosis of that in verse 34. And then we're going to look at what is the truth that sets us free in verses 35 and 36. So first of all, we're going to look at what it means to be free from slavery to self, what it means to be free from slavery to sin, and then what is the truth, what is the truth that sets us free. So let's begin with slavery to self in verse 33. Now let me read verse 33, because this is where the Jewish people, those who have a, and I think it would have to be said a fairly shallow uh, faith, although a faith nonetheless, a, a curiosity, a desire to follow Jesus. These are the, the Jews who believed in him, from verse 31. He says, the truth will set you free, and their response is one of indignance, of shock, of horror. We're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And I think this is one of the most ironic tragic quotes in scripture we're not slaves we're abraham's descendants i mean one makes you wonder what they thought was going on with the romans the a few a few uh like a few months maybe a year ago jesus is talking about answering the question that the pharisees had asked what do we do with this denarius do we give it or do we rebel do we object the tyranny of the romans or do we fight back there is a denial here of moral, factual, moral, and relational absolutes. It's a reductionist, minimalist type of freedom. In a sense, they are very free. They're free to deny the factual truth. And you might think, oh, well, perhaps they're not that enslaved by the Romans. Come on. Children of Abraham. Let's do a little bit of a history lesson. Two generations later, after Abraham... They were enslaved by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. My goodness. Freedom. We are free. We're not slaves. Who are they kidding? How do you self-deny and self-project such a narrative? So they are, in a sense, slaves to the ignorance of reality. And I wonder if we are guilty of that too. Are we guilty of being slaves to the elements of reality? Do we like to, those of us who don't find our purpose in Jesus, and even some of us who do find our purpose in Jesus, do we like to say that, you know, life isn't a grind, that it isn't hard, that we're not slaves to illness, that we are not, uh, we don't have to struggle under the yoke of cancer or mental health issues, that we can somehow escape death. Denying doesn't help. Denying doesn't help. You can pretend in your own recreated reality, just like these Jews did, but denying doesn't help. Denying just doesn't help. You're free, of course, you're free to factually, to deny the factual truth. There's a freedom there if you want to but it doesn't help. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say the biggest piece of denial that you have is you are slaves to the ignorance of the reality that you are sinful, 
that you're enslaved by that sin, that you are messed up. And we'll come back to that when we look at the next section. And so where does that lead us? Where does this freedom, in inverted commas, to deny reality? Well, it means that we end up having to self-define to ourselves and self-define to others to project. They, the Jews of the time were saying, we're children of Abraham. We have a behavioral religious faith. We are free in the sense that what we do, we have the capacity in ourselves to be what we, we want to be. We, can, uh, we don't need a Messiah. Jesus, you might be added value, but you certainly aren't the only way. We have a way of doing it ourselves. We have our tradition, our history. We're connected to, we are part of this cultural and ethnic and religious tradition. And they have to, in a sense, project that both to themselves and to others. And this is necessary for them to get through the denial. You can't deny the factual truth unless you have a way of projecting and convincing yourself and others that everything is okay. And I, in my counseling practice, I, I do this a lot. I talk about the destructive nature of denying reality. Sometimes reality is painful. It's not something we want to look at. But if we deny the reality within us and we try to project that, uh, that reordered, reframed, false reality to other people, it all falls apart. And I do that with two puppets, two hand puppets. On one puppet, I put a fish puppet, and on the other hand, I put a fox puppet. And I said, look, the fish is who you really are, but the fox is who you're projecting. And let's look at how that goes wrong over time. You walk down the road pretending to be the fox, and someone says to you, ooh, what beautiful fur you have. And inside, you're shriveling up because you know you've got scales. You go down a bit along, ooh, what a nice, uh, lovely ears you've got. And on the inside, you're shriveling up because you don't have any ears as a fish. Oh, what beautiful legs you've got. How fast you run. And on the inside, you're shriveling up because you don't have any legs. That projection means that even when people compliment you, even when people affirm you, even when people say to you, this, I see who you are and I want to bless that and I want to affirm that. It doesn't hit home. In fact, it makes you feel worse because on the inside you know it's not true. The scary thing is that you end up rejecting and pushing away from yourself even, even more. So yes, we are free to self-define to ourselves and to others, but where does that leave us? We're enslaved to that constant propagation of trying to convince ourselves that everything is okay, that we're okay, and the need to project that and to convince other people that that's true. And that happens, of course, when we minimize our brokenness. We minimize our sin. We don't need a Messiah. Jesus is added value, but he is not the only way. And we can do this. When we do this, we get to a point where we're not just free anymore. We're free to deny factual truth. We're free to self-define, of course, to ourselves and to others. But that leaves us having to reject the Creator's value and purpose. And we now have to define those things for ourselves. We are new slaves, in a sense, to finding significance and meaning. We have to find something that gives us a sense of value about ourselves. And we're doing that in the smallest 
of a world that we've created. It's no bigger than ourselves. We're sort of imploding on ourselves, trying to find a way of being what we think is going to be enough and convincing other people that we are enough. This reductionist, minimalist type of freedom, the freedom to deny the factual truth, the freedom to self-define to ourself and to others, and the leads to a forced rejection of the Creator's values and purpose. One that we have to take on the burden of for ourselves. And this is indeed an ironic, tragic, small, trapped-in-self-freedom. This is a minimalist, reductionist, desperate freedom. And it's a question that stands for our time as well. Whose descendants are we? How do we self-define? Where does the world, where do we find our identity and our purpose? Is it in science, in philosophy, in morals, in ethics, in religious practice? How do we say, I'm okay. Jesus is value add. I've got enough groundwork in place. Jesus doesn't add, and here's the reality of this statement. So the, the Jews have just come out and said, we're okay, we're Abraham's children. We're descendants of Abraham. Such nonsense. Such nonsense when people say that, when we say that, we're not okay. We're messed up, we're broken, we're trying to self-define, and we're imploding under the weight of the fact that it's not measuring up and that we become slaves to finding meaning and significance in small self-oriented ways. And Jesus doesn't, as he goes on, doesn't go on to say, well, I'm going to add to this self-declared small freedom, this self-definition. I'm going to add to that. I like the fact that you're children of Abraham. I think that's great. And let me tell you how I can add value. He doesn't do that. Jesus undoes their self-declared small freedom. And he declares them as slaves. Let me say that again. Jesus undoes their self-declared small freedom, and declares them as slaves. So let's look at that. The slavery to sin. Let me read it in verse 34. Let's see the words that Jesus actually used. Jesus replied when they said, we're free. How can you say we're not free? We're sons of Abraham. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If we look around this world, we know that it is, if we're honest, if we are factually honest with ourselves, if we look at the factual truth, it's broken. There is oppression. We are broken. We are both oppressed and oppressors. We are sinful. The world is racked with the consequences of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That is a reality check. That is a truth I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old O.J. Simpson. I'm not talking about the one that we all know now, who's basically a laughing stock of our culture. I'm talking about the old one pre-trial, the one who was known as a really nice guy, a good-looking sportsman. He was considered to be fast and elusive. He was named an All-American, two Rose Bowls, the Heisman Trophy. A success that seemed to come easy and was delivered with a smile. And it was that that the prosecutor had to undo when her opening statement 
in the trial. So I'm going to read you her opening statement. Uh, this is from... Marcia Clark, who was the lead prosecutor in the trial. This is how she started the prosecution. Being wealthy and famous doesn't and cannot change one simple truth. He's a person, and people have good sides and bad sides. We will show you the other side of the smiling face. Now, I actually think that this, uh, this piece of theology by Marcia Clark is far superior to the one that was handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States. It's a reality that we are, in fact, all broken on the inside. We are all messed up. We are all sinners. And we spend all of our time hiding that and projecting a, a smile, hiding behind our smile. No matter how hard we try to project a smile, we know that... This self-rejection is a mask at best and self-deception at worst. And Jesus in 34 spells out the same factual truth. If you sin, you are a slave. Anybody, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago I preached an ordination service up in Gloucester for someone that was once in our congregation. And after preaching that sermon where I basically laid out all the brokenness that a pastor lives with and brings to the pastor, pastorate and how you have to lean into Christ, you sort of have to don't run from it but confess it. And I met with one of what I would consider at least in my mind, probably not in his mind, a mentor of mine, I met with a guy called Gordon Hugenberger, a double PhD in theology and in quantum physics or something, pastor of Park Street Church, just a downright intellectual and spiritual giant in my eyes, and previous pastor of this church. And he came up to me and said, wow, that was a raw sermon. I said, what do you mean it was a raw sermon? He says, well, you laid it out there about how broken and messed up you are as a pastor and how broken and messed up we are in the pastorate, we, I appreciated the inclusive we there. <laughs> he, said, he said, would you preach that sermon in your own church? Would you be that vulnerable in your own church? And I was like, well, actually half of our church was here today. <laughs> and the reality is, I, I think about that, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, I hope Kyle and myself, as we preach, as we talk, as we walk, we don't project anything else than what we are messed up. And, and it's not for you guys. It's not because we need to be raw and vulnerable because there's some sort of, and there probably is some value to you for that. But the reason for that is because I need to be free. I cannot carry the burden. And I want you guys who are going into ministry here, and there are many of you who are, to remember that. Being broken is the only way to survive in ministry. Projecting anything else is a guaranteed way to burn out and self-destruct. There is great freedom, and I appreciate the liberty to do that here. To let all of our messed upness, you know, not have to hide that. So self-definition, projection, the denial, the constant denial of the seriousness of our sin and the brokenness in the world. We want to walk with this idea that we are nice people, and Jesus makes us nicer. 
And there's nothing true about that. That is so messed up. Sin is pervasive and deep and self-destructive, horrible, and causes pain and suffering, and we can't get out of it. We are slaves to sin. Luther put it this way. Sinful man is a man who's twisted in on himself. We get more and more myopic. Our world gets smaller and smaller. We get more and more caught up in ourselves and our sin. There's no escape, and it becomes more and more constricting. I like to think of it as the alcoholic who walks around. We are the alcoholic walking around saying, we could have the occasional drink. No big deal there, right? And of course, when it comes to alcohol, we know for an alcoholic that's ludicrous. But as Christians, we walk around all the time. I'm just a small time sinner, just a little sinner. I just do little things wrong here and there. I'm basically a good person. I don't really need to be rescued from my sin. Jesus, your great value add, but really, I'm, I'm pretty nice and you just make me a little bit nicer. We're addicts. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the small worldview. And we're constantly in relapse, trying to convince ourselves that we're okay, that our sin isn't that bad. And here's the thing about tyranny, about slavery. Freedom from tyranny, you don't get out of it yourself. You can't magically wave a monument. You can't, trying to reframe it, trying to reconstruct it, trying to redefine yourself doesn't work. Trying to be good, to earn it, to find your identity, even in healthy and good, constructive religious practice, doesn't work. We are in desperate need of rescue. Jesus does not add value. He is vital necessity. It's a more than, not less than, it's more than a life or death question. It is an eternity question. Where do you want to spend eternity? And this is the first truth that we need. The truth that Jesus makes very clear in verse 34. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to smallness. We're not free. Okay, you are free to recreate your reality. Yeah, you're free to go and project. And then you're free to go and recreate your own purpose and meaning. But the point that Jesus is making is that is not freedom. That is in itself slavery. If you look at the triumphant entrance where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem a week before he's crucified and the crowds are cheering. Here comes Jesus, the Messiah. They finally worked out that they're slaves to the Romans. He's going to free us from the Romans. And he doesn't deliver their expectation of what he should be. All he does is free them from themselves and from their sin. That's all he does by going to the cross. Jesus frees them from their identity. Jesus frees them from their need to project, their need to self-convince. Jesus frees them from their need to be obsessed with finding meaning and purpose. And this is the truth of our slavery. This is the truth of our slavery, but it is not the truth that sets us free. So two things we've done so far. First of all, the slavery to self. And secondly, the slavery to sin. So now we want to look at the truth that sets us free. The truth that sets us free. Are we looking at verses 
35 and 36. We saw that in verse 32, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And then he goes on in 35 and 36 to say, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Slave has no place in the family, and the son belongs forever. I have a good friend. He actually works at an estate in Beverly. And he's been working in that estate for many, many years. It's the estate of an old man who's now in his 90s and who's soon going to pass away. And over the years, uh, this uh, man who, who works in the garden uh, has got married and had a kid. And very early on, the estate was big. And they said, look, you can stay in the carriage house. And he moved into the carriage house. And there are other people working there. And they're all thinking, oh, this is going to be great. One day, they created this illusion for themselves. One day, this nine-year-old man who we're serving, who we're working for, is going to pass away. What will we do with the property? Will we set it up as a bed and breakfast? Will we set it up as a hotel? What will we do with the property? And, and recently, the nine-year-old man came to him and said, listen, I need, you know, it's been great. It's been seven, seven, eight years. You've been serving me. You've been working in the garden. You've been living in the carriage house. I just wanted to let you know that in September, my nephew's coming because he's going to stay here, so we need the carriage house. So you can keep working here, but you need to work. You need to move out. And all of a sudden, his illusions that this was bigger than just a job, his illusions that the fact that he'd been paid as a, and, and had fulfilled his part of the contract and, and that the nine-year-old man had fulfilled his part of the contract, his illusions that he belonged to that family, that that estate was somehow his were all shattered. He realized he wasn't even a slave. He was just a worker. And he realized that the housing meant nothing, that the cottage meant nothing. It's the nine-year-old man's, and it will be the nephew's. This man is turning up, not even a son, is turning up, and he's going to take over the running of the property. Sons belong forever. Family is forever. Jesus is talking here about an adoption, that you become a child of God, that you have a relationship with the Father made possible through the work of the Son on the cross. And the point here is really, really clear. You are not free if you are not adopted. Okay? You are not free unless you have the identity as that of an adopted son. You are not free unless you are adopted. And that freedom was won on the cross by Jesus Christ. He's going to the cross and saying, look, all, this, all that nonsense that you need to project for, all the shame, all the embarrassment, all the lack of perfection, all the brokenness that you, can, that you need to project and cover up, all the sin that pervades you and corrupts you, I'm bearing all of that. I'm taking all of that on. I'm earning your freedom, and not just your freedom in the sense that you are redeemed, that you're made righteous, that you stand justified before God, but you are made a son of God, a child of God. You are adopted into the family of God. And this brings a true identity, a real identity, a freeing identity, freedom from self. All of a sudden you become God-defined, not self-defined. And freedom to be a sinner, freedom to be broken without condemnation. Freedom from self-identity, whether we like it or not, and as people who are so bent 
on defining our own freedom for ourselves comes with a purpose. As a son, we are to take care of the family and the family of state. Of family estate. So as sons of God, we are to care for and love the family and the kingdom of God as that breaks into this world. We are to be consumed with that because that's what the family is consumed with. We have purpose because of that. We have significant purpose because of that. And it's not small, self-referential purpose. It's big, God-referential purpose. Now, before I told you I brought up a whole lot of ways that you can self-define as a scientist or a philosopher or someone who's moral or has religious practices or ethics. Now, the truth is all of those things, when they are used God-referentially to bring glory to God, become wonderful, deep, more than things. When we define ourselves through them, they become small and myopic. We are no longer twisted in on ourselves, but through our expression of science and philosophy and morals and ethics and religious practices, we glorify God. We find purpose in glorifying God. Now, does this bring freedom? Well, again, it depends on the definition. And I'm going to use this example, which I've used before, but it's the best one I have. So if you've heard it, it's just reinforcement. I want you to imagine the earthworm, the bird, and the fish. And the Earthworm, when is the earthworm truly free? Is the earthworm truly free when it's parachuting out of a plane or when it's swimming underwater? Not at all. Is a bird free when it's trying to swim in the ocean or fly underground? Not at all. Is the fresh fish free when it flops out onto the beach, onto the sand and can't move, or when it jumps off a cliff and tries to fly. No, we are free when we live in the context we were created to live. When we fulfill the purpose we were made for, we become everything that we should. Our identity becomes complete. It's why obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is truly freeing. Why being a son and being consumed with the family and the coming kingdom of God is truly freeing. We are doing what we were created to do. So I want to conclude by saying this. Small freedom isn't really very satisfying. When we self-define or when we project, when we're twisted in on ourselves, it is the big freedom when we are defined by God. We're free from small self-definition. We're free from the condemnation of sin. And we are freed to care about the family in the family estate. We're free to be broken and we are free to serve. And how do you respond to this? Firstly, if you have questions, ask them. Don't be afraid to ask them. We are not here to equip you to be an argumentative, difficult, objectionable, cultural bigot. We are trying to encourage you to realize that the one truth the, the rescuing, the freedom in, that we find in Jesus Christ is something that we need to share with other people. We need to be, and that begins by recognizing that work begins with the Holy Spirit. That work begins and ends with the Holy Spirit. And we hope that the Holy Spirit uses us. So we want to be in prayer. And last week I challenged you, each evening, 
Pray by name for those that you want the Holy Spirit to touch, that you want the Holy Spirit to move, that you want the truth of Christ, the freedom of Christ now. Christ is the only true way last week. There is only true freedom, freedom found in Christ. Who do you want to know that? Who do you want the Holy Spirit to work in their heart? Pray for them by name. Pray for them regularly by name. We sit around the dinner table each night and we list out those people and we pray for them by name. We pray that the Holy Spirit will move in their heart, that the Holy Spirit will give us a chance to talk to them and to introduce Jesus to them. Not only do we want them to know the inclusive truth of Jesus Christ, today we see and we want them to know the true freedom that can be found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, yeah, there is freedom. There is liberty. We have the option, the right, the ability to self-define and project, to deny the factual truth, to deny our place in the created order and the way that you have defined a context for us to thrive in. There, there is freedom to do those things. But how unfreeing, how small, how twisted in unself, how myopic, how painful that truth is. Freedom is. Help us, Father, to seek a liberating freedom, a big freedom, a purposeful freedom that comes from you. Help us to be so excited about that that we want to run out and introduce you to the people that we love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.